Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today are Peace Center poet in residence, Glennis Redmond, Vice President of Community Impact for the Peace Center, Larissa Gelman, and Charleston poet laureate, Marcus Amaker. And we're going to be talking about the Peace Center's Peace Voices program. Larissa, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Peace Center is doing. This, this program is a part of their community outreach. That's right. Um, it's um, an extraordinary thing for an arts organization to have a poet in residence. Um, we are lucky and honored to have Glennis Redmond as our poet in residence, who does incredible work both on the stage and in the community in Greenville and throughout the entire state. She also travels throughout the whole country and um, internationally. So uh, to have her time at the Peace Center and, and to be working with all of us is, a, is an incredible asset. We believe that the Peace Center is a is a platform for open dialogue. We are committed to the genre of poetry to be able to do that in addition to the performing arts. Um, and we believe that there's a place for poetry in all our lives. Glennis makes it accessible to everyone from our youngest children to our patrons who attend our Broadway series. We have um, such an incredible spectrum of people attending the poetic conversations and the workshops that she does. Um, she makes it an entry point for, for everyone in our community. This is a very interesting program. As you say, it's rare for something for an institution to have a poet in residence. Universities do. And by reaching out to the community, you're changing the whole way people look at art, and particularly something like poetry. Glennis, I'm going to throw this to you because you advertise yourself as an Afro-Carolinian, yes. which I love. But you were raised as an Air Force brat. Yes. Were you born in... I'm the only one of five children born in South Carolina. Okay. My brother before me was born in Everu, France. Okay. And I was born in Shaw Air Force Base. Okay. So, but I we returned here when I was in middle school. Oh, okay. And it was at Woodmont Junior Senior High School is where I picked up the poetry pen. And uh, my teacher, Miss Sargent at the time, she's Mrs. Allen now, is the one who had us writing in our journals 15 minutes a day. I really did not want to do it. But it's the thing that expanded my life. Were you writing poetry, or you just had to do an entry in your journal? We just had to do a free write. So, But by the third day, poetry just came full-blown. And that is not accidental. I was surrounded by poetry in my home, but it wasn't until in the fifth grade living in Aviano, Italy, that I went to a black history program and heard my first poem. It's a poem by Jackie Early, 1,968 winners, that's talking about the civil rights movement, talking about 1968, you know, King, April 4th, 1968. And that poem lit a fire in me in the fifth grade. So when that assignment came around, it really felt a little bit more like grace that this poem had already spoken to me in the fifth grade. And by the time I uh, had this assignment, I started writing back to that poem. And I was going to say you kept doing but actually you got your bachelor's degree from Erskine yes. College. And uh, you were going to be a, a counselor. Yes. A degree in psychology. I went to Erskine College, majored in psychology, and was working on a, had a full ride to Virginia Commonwealth University. And it was my first year. I'm a first-generation college student. So imagine that phone call when I called my parents and said, I don't want to complete the PhD. And the question they asked was, what is it that you want to do? In a very still, small voice, I said, poetry. And they were like, what? <laughs> I can empathize with that reaction because I started off as a pre-med student. Oh, wow. And then... Chemistry got me, and I said I wanted to major in history because I loved it. And my father, and I can't repeat all the words he said, <laughs> are you going to do with a history degree? Yes. And I said, I love it. It's my passion. And we're so glad you did because I uh, have been telling Larissa I have followed the work that you do. And the fact that I'm the only child born in South Carolina, for a long time I said I would never live in Greenville, South Carolina. But never say never. About six years ago, my mother got sick, and I was living in Nashville. And I came home, and the Peace Center found out that I was at home. And I had been working on their stages as a teaching artist, as a poet 
for about 15, maybe 16 years. They would have me come in and work with teachers teaching poetry. I would work with the school kids. I would do performances. They would bring them in by the droves. And so, but I never thought I would live in Greenville again. And when I came home to take care of my mother, I found out that she had a lot of stories to tell me. My mother's 81 now, and she's still alive. And she had so much to tell me about this history. Not, it's not all in books. It's uh, her memory, and she's a storehouse. And what a blessing. So I got two blessings. I got the blessing of being with my mother and sitting and listening to her recall and remember, and I write things and I need. How has that had an impact on your poetry? It's turned my poetry in a... The work that I'm writing now is really about her lineage and how she got to where she was. I had this moment as a Marcus and I were on a project where we were writing about the clips. And I took the assignment, but it really turned me to my mother. And the question I'm asking in the poem is, Mom, are you the first person to graduate from high school in your family? And she looked at me and said, yes. And I, as a child, I said, how did I not know that? And so the whole poem is me talking about how she went from Lawrence to she was shipped to Greenville County so she could have, you know, she went to Fountain Inn Negro High School and so she could have an education. So I'm writing a lot about her story. A historical subtext is African-Americans her age, particularly living in rural areas, often went and stayed with kinfolk in Columbia or Greenville or Charleston, where they could go to an accredited high school. Right, right. She stayed with her Uncle Willie and Aunt Carrie, and for a long time she thought her, her mother didn't want her. And her mother was giving her what she didn't have. She was a domestic. My grandmother, who lived to be 109, was giving her daughter what she couldn't have. Oh, that's a powerful story. Powerful. It is. And it shaped me, and I think I've been shaped in many ways in ways that I didn't know until I came home. And what a rich place South Carolina is. Well, it is rich, and it is wonderful, and sometimes it's very difficult. It's to complicated, un- it's, right? It, it's, as young people like Marcus would say, it's complicated. Well, that doesn't even begin to describe South Carolina. Right. But it's, I love it for what it is. Well, I, I started unpacking it. You know, it's just unpacking it poetically. And it's like, of course I should have known that. So then we get to the moment of poet in residence. How did that happen? Well, it didn't happen easily. It's 25 years of traveling in my car. Um, I have one car that I still have. It has 600,000 miles on it. Wow. Uh, It's a Mercedes, (laughs) Uh, because the Ford Explorer could not withstand those miles. But this 600,000 miles are all poetry miles. And I started here at the South Carolina Arts Commission. I was an artist on roster in the 90s. Then uh, I did that for seven years, you know, going from town to town in South Carolina. And then after that, it was Kennedy Center, and I work. I'm still a teaching artist for the Kennedy Center, and that took me nationally. Well, I, I read somewhere that you travel up to 35,000 miles a year. Yes. A- and you're doing all that driving. You're not. That was until the Peace Center entered in, so I'm not doing all those miles anymore. So I'm, I have a lot more um, time to be in my community and imp- impacting change poetically in the community. Okay. Marcus, you're the poet laureate of Charleston. How did that come about? It's a long story. I've I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, in 2003. Um, at that time, I had been writing a lot, and I worked for the Post and Courier there. So I was a journalist or, for or, 15 years. Me, where did you come from then? If you were you born in South Carolina? No, I'm an Air Force brat as as well. So <laughs> I was yeah I, I was born in in Las Vegas, and we moved. England and Maryland and Japan and Texas. Um, my family is all from from Orangeburg. So when my dad retired from the Air Force, uh, he knew that I needed to get closer to my family. So we moved to Orangeburg for a little bit. Then I came to Columbia and graduated from high school here. My only year in high school here was my senior year. And by that time, I was really tired of moving. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll try um, USC. So Went to USC and majored in, in journalism, then worked at a newspaper in Anderson, South Carolina. Then um, Post Post and Courier called and said that they needed a graphic designer because that's 
something that I love to do. That's my um, job. I have a dra- graphic design business. But all throughout that time, I had been writing and performing and writing and performing and connecting. And at the Post and Courier, I became editor of their weekend section. So being editor of a weekend section in, in a city like that means that you're out a lot. And I just made a lot of connections. So um, started being in schools a lot as well. So just connecting, connecting. And then the massacre at the church happened um, at Emanuel AME and uh, the Charleston City paper, which is the alt-weekly there, they asked me to write a poem about it. And I did, which is not an easy thing to do, still not an easy poem to read. So I wrote that poem. They actually called me the day after the massacre, um, because none of us in Charleston slept that night, you know? So um, I wrote that poem that next day, send it in, and I found myself reading it for the families um, at a benefit concert soon after. And the mayor, um, would-be mayor, was in the was in the audience then. Mayor um, Tecklenburg. Yes, yeah, and he was he was running for mayor at the time, and he said, "Hey, man, if I become mayor, I want you to write a poem for my uh, inauguration." And when he became mayor, I was waiting for the phone call, and it <laughs> happened. And so Marjorie Wentworth, um, poet laureate of the state, and I, we wrote a poem together for the inauguration. And after that, he created the position for me. I mean, it's it's cool to say that, but that but but that happened. It was well, to amplify I, voices. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a great story. Now I know you're going to have lunch with Ed Madden, who is poet laureate for the city of Columbia. Mm-hmm. When you were at Carolina, you were in journalism. Did you take any poetry classes with Ed? No, the, no. I mean, I was in in Carolina in the nineties. Um, I don't know okay, if he was okay. there then. Yeah. I mean, did you take any kind of poetry classes? I took one poetry class when I was in uh, a freshman. Okay. Yeah, I didn't really study it as much as some other folks okay. do. So 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 you really kind of came into this you had an epiphany of some of some sort? <laughs> I believe that it grew from my love of music. I've always been a big um, fan of music. Folk music is my number one thing. I think I think uh, J- Joni Mitchell is the greatest songwriter of all time. So I study uh, Joni Mitchell. I've been doing that since I was really young. So I think I just grew into it because I wanted to be a singer. I still do, but I can't sing. So um, <laughs> okay. I just feel like I'm writing songs the whole time. You, know? right. you will be part of a panel in Greenville coming up, right? Yes, he is. Um, at the Peace Center, the program that I run is called Peace Voices, where we have workshops and readings and for adults and teens. But we also have another program that I uh, curate and founded called Poetic Conversations. And that's where we pair two poets. I really like to call them, you know, unlikely poets pairing together. Um, I really like the different walks because poetry, you know, so much fits under the umbrella of poetry where you have the griots of, you know, West Africa, the beat poets, slam poets, academia, and somewhere in between you know there's me and so we have I I embrace all of it I don't stick to one or the other even though I'm one of the people who I created the first poetry slam in Greenville South Carolina uh, in 1994 I believe so it's really nice on the same street on Main Street I'm back home with this program called Poetic Conversations and the one that uh, Marcus will be in is called For Poetry's Sake for National Poetry Month and he will be uh, taking the stage with Cheryl Boyce Taylor who is a phenomenal Trinidadian poet by the way of New York and of course Marcus I think it's going to be a wonderful evening Uh, it's going to be on April 26th at 630 and the only thing I ask them to do is come and be themselves so they kind of share a poem, a piece, get to know each other through that poem. And then I ask them not to have really a set, but bring the poems that when you hear Cheryl speak, Marcus, how will that make you feel? And he'll flip mm-hmm. to how he's feeling. So it's kind of like jazz a little bit, you know, a little bit like just it's not a it's not a competition. It's not a slam. Um, and then we have the audience members who are there for a talk back. So, so basically, they're taking a riff. You used to continue with the jazz image. Mm-hmm. You're taking a riff off of her poetry, and and yes, yeah, yeah. How you feel? Like how you go? How does this blend? And of course, that's a great conversation. Is you build off, build off one another, and you get to know each other. Like we, I remember we had Lamar Wilson and Mindy Knott, opposite ends of the spectrum. But when they got on the stage, 
They both had farming backgrounds. They both had people who were, uh, they were clergy. So it was just really beautiful to get to see them go, oh, me too. And me too is just like where I'm feeling with Marcus. We're both Air Force brats. You know, there's just, there's something about when people start to talk, you find the commonalities. Let's talk about Marcus. What makes you different from your fellow poet coming up? Do you know? I'm really open to learning more about her. I, I, I really like going into experiences not with the script in mind or with, um, with expectations. I really like going into it really o- open. I know a lot about her son, yes. <laughs> and I'm really excited to learn more about her. So Tell so, them about her son. Yeah, her son um, was, uh, he's passed. Uh, he was in a member of A Tribe Called Quest, which is one of the, the best hip-hop groups of all time. And they really, A Tribe Called Quest was one of my starting points for becoming a writer um, before I even knew what really poetry was, or and jazz, which is kind of ironic that this is Poetry Month and it's Jazz Month. But they really um, use jazz in, in their music in ways that I've never heard, heard before. So it was funny, my dad is a huge jazz fan, and then I got into jazz through him and through hip-hop and through A Tribe Called Quest. Um, so, um, yeah, her son um, was a member of A Tribe Called Quest, so I'm going to be uh, freaking out the whole time when I'm there. Yes, <laughs> Because yes. I'm just really excited to meet her and just and, and just give her a hug and, you know. I think you guys are going to be a perfect pairing for yeah. a lot of different reasons. Generationally, they're different, and her walk is, uh, she does a lot of colloquial um, uh, Trinidadian, uh, so I'm hoping in this new book that she is going to uh, bring that out and, of of course, you know, I can't imagine losing a child, you know, her her son, Five Dog. Mm-hmm. And so she has poetry around that as well. So it's going to be a powerful evening. I, I look at Cheryl as one of these people who she's done so much in the poetry community in New York. I heard about her way before I ever met her. And they said, if you want to find someone who's a great editor, who has a great eye and look at your work, you need to find Cheryl Boyce Taylor. And Lo and behold, I was walking in New York, in down Brooklyn, uh, with a friend, Patricia Starrick, who was at our last poet uh, poetry conversation, and walked into a bookstore, and there was Cheryl Boyce Taylor uh, conducting a reading. And she said, are you two poets? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> she invited us to the stage. So it's one of those things that um, was meant to be. And I think that that's what happens on the stage in the conversations. That's why I don't want it too scripted, because... If you don't leave room, as they say in my tradition, for the spirit, mm-hmm. there you know there will be no magic. Nothing will happen. And so I want to set the structure and then step back and let whatever resonate, resonate. A lot of folks might think, well, you're going to have a poetry reading, and they figure a nice little bookstore and people sitting around in a circle, uh, maybe at a podium, but probably not. But you're talking about poetry as performance. Well, not actually performance, but it's, I mean a reading. Because you, yes, you... yes, that was a that was a reading. Um, and but I think she comes from a tradition similar to me, is that you know you everybody's invited to the table, and so it was really one of those moments where she just looked and said, "Oh, we have poets in the house, and it's like a jazz band. If you have like you know somebody's playing, and there's um, somebody walks in the door who can play, mm-hmm. they're like they get that nod. My father was a jazz blues gospel pianist, and all the time at churches or wherever we were, they saw my dad was in the room. They would nod, and that meant for him to get up there and play the piano. And so um, we'd like to leave room for that. What also happens at these conversations is one of the um, outreaches that I uh, perform is a part of the program called Poetic Ambassadors, where we have our teens who workshop and they also write and perform. And I have about 10 of them who are just geeks for poetry. And they go along with me when I'm called to go to the Rotary Club or the Chamber of Commerce. So they open a lot of times for the poetic conversation. So I'll invite one or two of them to open the conversation. So this space that we've created now, you have the poets, you have the audience, and then you have the the young poets. So it's intergenerational. So there's a lot that's going on. Well, I think I saw that you have students from 9 to 90, which sounds like a... <laughs> yes, it's a range. Um, I don't know, Marcus, what's your range for what you work with? But I work with upper elementary all the way up to senior citizens. I mean, I do not exclude really anybody. Well, when you have this program at, at the Peace Center, 
do people sign up for it? I mean, so it's, it's like going, it's like taking a night class or? Yes, it's like that. It's like a continuing ed class. It's a really wonderful way to look at it. Um, you just go to the website, um, thepeacecenter.org, and you go under Community Impact. And they'll roll down a menu of all of our conversations that we have and then also the uh, workshops that I'll be running. And they're all free, but we ask people to register because we just like to capture that and we'd like to know who is coming to our events. And we're creating what Larissa and I, was t- we were talking about it yesterday. We're creating an intentional, creative community. That's very exciting. Larissa, let's look at what the Peace Center is sponsoring in the schools. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. We have a myriad of programs that are going on in addition to our poetry programs. Uh, One of the things we'll be announcing is our new season uh, and a a reimagined series for uh, curated specifically for grades 3 through 12, which is going to be called our Peace Passport Series. And we've taken a deeper look into how to support teachers in the classrooms to bringing art Uh, music, dance, theater, and even science from the stage into their classrooms. So we've curated this dynamic and diverse series, which I believe has close to 13 different performances, ranging from very intimate performances with chamber music to um, grand performances on our stage, where things are going to probably be blown up and exploded uh, (laughs) for our science series. I love when things blow up on the stage, and metaphorically and and, you know, and also real life. Um, but what we've also tried to do is infuse Glennis's work and the variety of work that she does into our performance series. So she will be doing work that will connect uh, music and dance and poetry in sharing the life and work of a South Carolinian enslaved uh, potter. Um, and his name was David Drake, and he can his pots are... Um, at the museum in Greenville, uh, the art museum. And Jonathan Green, a, a very famous painter in South Carolina, has depicted him in his work. Um, Glennis has elevated that to poetry and is bringing it to the stage, which I think is absolutely incredible how one person ex- inspires the next and inspires the next. And so that's what we're doing in the schools. We're doing it through music. We're doing it through theater. We're doing it through um, poetry. And we're also helping teachers look at different modalities of learning and differentiate learning for their students. It's so exciting. It's such an adventure every single day to be able to work with with this community and help students and teachers. I agree because, I mean, one of the things that I am looking at is place-based poetry, writing about place. So, you know, that place can be a physical place. It can be an emotional place. And when I was talking about my mother earlier, that feels very emotional, but it's really tied to South Carolina. And uh, Larissa mentioned David Drake. I'm just obsessed with the man. I, I, I really consider him a poet because he inscribed on his pots. And I think that's phenomenal. And I think every school child should know his story. I mean, Edgeville, South Carolina, that's just around the way from Piedmont, you know? And if I would have known about him in the fourth grade, I'm sure I would have been a poet much earlier. (laughs) Um, And I am fascinated by this man. So the fact that Jonathan Green was painting him in the 90s is speaks to Jonathan Green. He always gets there before all of us. Um, and I am writing what we call ekphrastic poetry, meaning I'm writing to a, a work of art. So I'm, I've written 28 David Drake poems, and we're trying to just bring Dave alive because there are no photographs, just paintings and renderings of him. Dave Potts are famous, and actually when Jonathan first started doing his his paintings, Dave had just become, his pots had just become very hot in the folk art field. Yes. A very valuable piece of South Carolina clay. It is. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and there's some in Charleston at the Charleston Museum as well. Right, and, and they're all over. To, oh, yeah, I was asked to, to write a poem about Dave as well for the for the Charleston Museum. That was a couple of years ago, and yes. it was it was a really cool event as well. So I feel like it's a good time to do some art um to to do things around his spirit and his and his life right there's enough for everyone because the way i look at it i always take my cue intuitively and i didn't know who david drake was i had a a colleague who was writing historically about him and as soon as she mentioned that everywhere i would go that someone would say do you know david drake and i would go (laughs) 
you know, so by the third time I got that, I said, okay, Dave, I will write some poems. I'm Obviously, I'm supposed to be, you know, writing these poems. And it has been really powerful. But I think we're 12 or 13 pots in Greenville. So I think that is really powerful. And I've been to Edgeville, and I work with two wonderful colleagues, Dr. Gabrielle Foreman and Dr. Lynette Overby. One is a choreographer, one is a literature professor, African-American literature professor. And we came together to uh, bring Dave alive. And we said, we're going to need somebody to dance, Dave. And uh, a friend of mine said, well, I have somebody at Townsend who I call. So she called Vincent Thomas. And lo and behold, he said, I do not know who David Drake is, but I tell you this. I'm from Edgeville, South Carolina. And so, I mean, we all got chills, and he went back. This was him going back home and rediscovering his roots. So I think there's a theme in this place-based work. I mean, we, uh, we were talking earlier about where is your gaze? Some people's gaze is the future and the present. Mine tends to be a lot in the past for me to move forward. So everybody's different. Um, but I think this work is very valuable for not just us as artists, but also for the young people in our communities to know history. You were talking about place and whether it is the physical place from which you come or spiritual. You know, the old saw, home is where the heart is. Jonathan Green Everything he does, all of his work is infused with growing up in the South Carolina Low Country. That's right. And he is the person who pointed me in the 90s. Um, he came and did a work in Greenville, and we all, as the black community, no one could afford it, but we all grouped together and bought his painting, The Christening. And it was there while I was talking to him, because you know the story about Jonathan. They, you know, He was born with a call over his face, which means he has the gift of sight. And he, that was right around the time I had left the counseling field because I was a clinical counselor for the state of South Carolina. I had left the Ph.D. program, but I was still in the field, and he looked at me and said, you're supposed to be doing poetry. Don't fight it. <laughs> and so I always turned to Jonathan. Jonathan has always been um, this, uh, you know, this guide who's kind of pushed me forward in my work personally and in craft. And so I'm really thankful. And, you know, talk about play space. He's one of those who really nailed that down. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with three guests, Glennis Redman, who is poet in residence at the Peace Center. Larissa Gelman, who is Vice President of Community Impact for the Peace Center, and Charleston's Poet Laureate Marcus Amaker, and we'll be talking about an upcoming program at the Peace Center called For Poetry's Sake. And it is a conversation, and it is part of a larger series, a larger program that's going on up there in Greenville. Yes. The one that's coming up is April 26th at 6.30 in the Huguenot Loft. And the beautiful thing about that, there is a master class before it at 4.30 that is free and open to the public. And the reading between Marcus Amaker and Cheryl Boyce Taylor takes place at 6.30. And so we're happy um, that Marcus and uh, Cheryl will be joining us for that event. All right. I wanted to ask you, Marcus, do you still have your day job at the Post and Courier? No, I don't. I actually left uh, the journalism world about seven years ago, but I, I work for myself doing doing gra graphic design. So, yeah, doing websites and posters and all types of stuff. And I've been blessed to have a lot of national clients and design a national music magazine and things like that. So, okay, yes. Marcus, I would like you to read your poem that you did about Mother Emanuel. Okay. Yes, this poem as I mentioned, was written the day after the massacre. The first version of this was very angry, and I um, edited it down a bit. Um, but this is called Black Cloth. Racism, let us no longer walk in your shoes. You are a traveler of darkness, a walker of shadows, cloaking yourself in a black cloth like the Grim Reaper, and arming your soul with the tools of a terrorist, a misguided soldier who's trying to start a war. My sisters, heaven was as close as your breath that night. You came to Mother Emmanuel to worship in the glow of God and speak the light that flows from love 
How beautiful of him to hear your words and lift you into the arms of Christ. My brothers, you walked toward heaven with focus, even when your shoes were stained with the dirt of intolerance. A black cloth lay silent at Clementa Pinckney's seat, resting under a single rose. It was taken from our city's soil where seeds of faith continue to grow. Charleston, I see heaven in your tears and feel the weight of sadness in your voice. I've seen strangers hold hands as the sun wraps us in unbearable heat. I've watched children of contradiction come together for the unity of the holy city. But South Carolina, nine more members of your family are now in heaven, and you have to confront the reality of racism, the dusk of pain, the lightlessness of the dawn, and I would rather hang a black cloth on a flagpole than give the Confederate flag another glimpse of the sun. That's beautiful. Now, Glennis, you have written, I want your Dave poem. Oh, my Dave poem, okay. Uh, right, have you got another poem you'd prefer to read right now? No, that's fine. I was going to, I had one. Um, it wasn't for the manual, but it was, um, I wrote it um, when the black churches were being burned in the 90s. All right, let's, let's read that poem first. Oh, that one? Okay. So this is the poem that I wrote for the Blackburn churches in the 90s. I wanted to do something. We got an Arts Council grant. My friend, Lynn Greer, who's a wonderful visual artist, painted a poster of a black church scene, and we put my poem on it, and we raised money for the Blackburn churches. And I thought, how horrific um, here in our present day that we are still facing some of the same terror. Our spirit stands. Tears of disillusion have always fallen from our black eyes. My ancestors have carried burdens like boulders, raised children in the strange light of crosses burning in their yards. Our tired trek has not always been written in books, but we sing, we dance, we write poems on how we have proceeded one heavy step after another. Now the first place of our solace, the place where we shout joy, is coming down. Churches raining like tear-stained ashes around our weary feet. Hope, dreaded, twisted, gnarled like arthritic fingers, yet our spirit stands puffed up like deep purple mountains, raised high like brown holy hands, cried out like a chorus of hallelujahs. Our spirit stands. We whisper heated prayers of protection, seek to be cradled like hymns. In the arms of God, we meditate on an end to this madness. We focus on the good. We cower not to these shriveling acts of the demented. Rise above these crimes. We kneel not to this hatred. Bend not to these evil deeds. We stand steadfast in the midst of these fires. It will not burn the crucifix in our eyes. We will not dash our hopes among the jagged rocks of injustice, but step on mounds as old as time. Pilgrim to what is lost is found. We will caress the stranger within us, find hope in each other's trembling eyes, and rise up on the wings of eagles and let faith fly like doves from our hands. And when the dust of these disasters settle and a cry of our faith, we will resound. Our spirit stands, our spirit stands, our spirit stands. Well. I'm thinking back to my undergraduate days in describing poetry, and we had to read Coleridge and Wordsworth and, you know, all of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little different, right? Yeah, the, the, yes. Also read E.E. E. Cummings, so we, we got to the modern age right. a little bit. How would you describe your poetry for our listeners? Blank verse? Uh, I'm, I'm a free verse narrative poet who's rooted in West African and Southern tradition. And when people ask me who are my first uh, poetry teachers, I say black Baptist ministers. Because I was sitting in the pew and the cadence of their voices and their rhythm and the way they spoke, and I was raised by a father who played by ear. 
Um, those were my earliest teachers. So you could hear all of that influence in my work. I am My family was working class, sharecroppers, and enslaved before that, but much more than that. Um, and so when I write, I write poems that I would want my 109-year-old grandmother who had a third grade education to understand. So right. that is who I am. And so I am very much aligned with Carl Sandburg because he was a poet of the people. And, uh, you know, he and Robert Frost fought all the time. Okay. You know, Robert Frost said, you know, you know, not doing form was like playing tennis without a net. <laughs> and it's Carl Sandburg. No, poetry can be, you know, these nuggets of free verse. Yeah. What, what's that line from one of... Of Sandberg's poem about Chicago, about the fog creeping. Oh, the oh, that's the fog poem. The fog comes on little cat feet. Yes, it sits looking over harbor and city on silent haunches, and then moves on. So, see, some of that modern poetry did seep into my undergraduate. (laughs) (laughs) Poetry is one of those things. I think it sinks deep in people. And uh, Marcus can talk about what his uh, philosophy is when he's out, out. But I really, my goal is not to make people poets. My goal is for people to experience the poetry in their lives. So to have that gaze, become better appreciators, you know, of poets. I really do think poets should be celebrated and honored. I feel like we've lost that in this country. My father could recite the Midnight Rite of Paul Revere, and I mean, ad nauseum. (laughs) (laughs) But he was putting something in me, and he was one of my poetry teachers because he recited poetry. And how beautiful could we be if we celebrated poetry more? So I want to thank you for creating this space and this opportunity for us to come and uh, talk about poetry on your show. First of all, you're most welcome, but I also was thinking about poetry Many years ago, I interviewed Robert Penn Warren. He said what was missing then, he said, as a young boy growing up, he had to memorize poetry, good and bad. And he said some of it was very bad, but the very process of memorizing poetry, the impact that that had later on in his life. Of course, he didn't become a poet until much later. I mean, he's, right. he, did, he was doing fiction. Yes. But as a young boy growing up in Mobile, Alabama, through the sixth grade, the first 10 minutes of every day, we had we, we wrote poems in our notebook, and then we had to memorize them. Yes. And, th- and they were not great poems, but we did it every day. I think it was in the fifth or sixth grade. Oh, I think that's great, and I think we're losing that. Um, but I think we, there are initiatives through you know the work that Marcus does and I do and teaching artists across the country are doing um, with different institutions are bringing poetry back and helping teachers embody poetry. I love there's Poetry Out Loud, which is a recitation program that's through the NEA. Um, I work with a group called Poetry Alive. I mean, I did silly poems like Termite by Ogden Nash. So all of those beautiful, you know, little silly poems. Yeah, but the act of the- memorizing that inter- memorizing ter- internalizing that you embody it and I think it makes you different um, when you embody something it's a kinesthetic intelligence mm-hmm. which I don't think we always talk about we always talk about the cerebral the heady the intellectual but there is a there's an intelligence in the body and when you memorize it in the body you walk differently and I've seen so many of my students especially disenfranchised marginalized communities that I go into and they have they have so much to say and when they start learning poetry and they start memorizing poetry, it, I, I believe, I'm hokey, I believe it changes lives. It saved my life. Um, that's why yeah. I walk in the way. Yeah, I've definitely see, seen that happen in Charleston with the schoolwork you know, that I've been doing. And um, we always write really silly poems. I mean, if it's um, a kindergarten class, which I was at just a couple of d- days ago in Edisto, um, or, or if it's you know college kids, we always try to do sort of short poems to get them to less think about it as a poem, but more about being intentional with, with your words. And that's a big deal for me. So that's what I want, you know, folks, folks are usually scared of, of the word, you know, poetry for some reason. And it's interesting to me, but so I, I go into a classroom and I just get them to all be intentional with their words and write those down. And once you start not wasting words, that's, that's when I think that poetry really starts to flow you know and we always do you know exercises it's it's called it's called a one word poem where kids get up you know on stage and then we all say one word and it'll be a continuous you know thought um and anytime they say like or um or stumble or something you know that's when it stops but it's all for me it's all about being intentional with the words because we aren't allowed to waste any words in our poems you know 
All right, Marcus, Glennis described her poetry. Would you describe your poetry style? Yes, yeah, I believe uh, mine is, is music. I, I believe that really when I was you know long, younger, I was really just writing all these songs and somebody decided to call them poems, you know? And so for me, my, my poetry, that's how there's sort of structure. There's always has to be a rhythm behind it. Um, as far as what I write about, it's everything. It's um, I'm just holding up a mirror to what I'm seeing, especially in, in Charleston being tasked with being Poet Laureate. And there's a lot of change in Charleston right now. And just holding up to a mirror to what I'm seeing and also being a voice for people who don't have a voice. Um, and that's something that I've been working on with a poetry festival that I started in Charleston called Free Verse that I'm working with the mayor on where we are getting kids, especially um, brown kids, to write poems, and we're going to put those all around the city so that people can hear their voices, and I think that that's really important. But that's really what inspires me, is to be, is to amplify voices that aren't really heard, but also just be completely truthful. I think um, it's not easy to always just be so open and be, you know, nude in our poems. But there's so many, there's so much small talk that's happening, you know, um, in conversations and all around the world. There's so much small talk. Um, and I, I don't, I don't work um, comfortably in that space. So I'm always um, speaking from truth and holding up a mirror to what I'm seeing. So, and that could be lyrical poems, that could be prose, that could be you know, quote-unquote, spoken word, whatever, however it manifests itself. Well, in both of your biographies, I came across the term a poetry slam. <laughs> and for this novice, I had no idea what a poetry slam was. So could you enlighten me and our listeners out there what a, about a poetry slam? Well, Mark Smith in Chicago started poetry slams at a venue called, uh, I don't know if it's the Green Door um, I believe it was, and he was tired of seeing the baseball stadium just crowded. So he said, how could I get people to poetry? So he invented this competitive form. I mean, think Olympic diving or something like that, where you would, people would come to a venue and they would have their poems memorized or on page, doesn't really matter, and they would compete and you would pick judges from the audience, either three or five, and they would score zero to 10, zero being the worst, 10 being the best poem you've ever had. And um, it's tongue in cheek because usually the people that you're getting to judge have never even been to a poetry slam before or never been to a poetry reading before. So it's a gimmick. Um, my friend Alan Wolf, who is a wonderful poet in Asheville, North Carolina, he came up with this phrase, and I believe it, the points are not the point. The point is poetry. Usually what you'll find in a poetry slam is people who have been needing to say something for a very long time are the people who are there and their voices really get raised because they never have had an opportunity. They've never had a, a platform. So like I said, I, I, I started the one in Greenville, South Carolina, and then it went to Vera Gomez. It is now with Kimberly Sims under Wits End. And so there's a, there's, it's a lineage. It's been passed on. I don't slam anymore. I'm a grandma. Um, I don't find myself <laughs> at Poetry Slams, um, but I do believe in the art form. Um, my teens, we do a slam at the Peace Center. I think it's a great way to study craft on stage. Are there rules for a Poetry Slam? Yes. Your rules have, the, your poem have to be under three minutes. No props and original work. This is strictly oral. It's strictly oral. And the other kind of side tongue-in-cheek rule is to leave your ego at the door. But we know poets. Nobody ever does that. But, um, <laughs> you know, because you really, it really is about, it's supposed to be intentional community setting. And so I believed it. And when I started in 94, it was, the, it was very diverse. We had, you know, a black, white, Asian, Latino, doctor, lawyer, bus driver, and, you know, you know 80-year-old poets versus, I think, my daughter at the time. I was the youngest poet. She was five. You know, there are people who rant, you know, and there are people who have the love poems, comedy, you know, anger and rage, all of it. There's that. I think poetry is a container that can hold it all. And slam is one of those places that really claims poetry of the people. All right. Well, why don't you read your Dave poem now? Sure. Um, this poem is for David Drake, enslaved poet from Edgeville, South Carolina. First time I see a jar rise up, I be midwife into life. 
See how these pots and I be kin, dismissed to what's underfoot. I learned to turn and turn people the world with pots until 40,000 around me crowd. But everything I love, I lose. So I want what I mold to hold. Even my empty pots be full. One say, I wonder where is all my relations. Friendship to all in every nation. There are lanterns in my words. Every story got another story. Some call me Dave the Slave. If that's all they got, huh. I say, leave the rhymes to me. When people look at me, a slave be the first excuse they use not to see me. I say, praise me. It won't fall on deaf ears. I catch praise like most people catch naps. I'm a six-foot vessel of anything but ordinary, a one-of-a-kind with a Carolina shine. I stepped out of the rows of cotton to master the potter's will. I take the wind out of cant. With my mark, I make a mark. I sign my name, Dave. I don't write slave. See if my pots and I spin history. See if we hold, hold. Thank you. And Marcus, you also have a poem about Dave, do you Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And it's in my latest book called Empath. Which is lovely. I have Empath. Thank you. This is called Calloused Hands, and this was commissioned by the Charleston Museum for um, a Dave the Potter exhibit. What history will we carve with our hands? Will it be an unfiltered truth as written word tattooed on the body of pottery when reading and writing were revolutionary? Will our hands hold each other in crisis again and again when our bodies are fragile and bone dry, coiling the repetition of past mistakes shaped by the fires of racism? Will America hold out her hands to the ghosts of our ancestors and repair her history? Her body has been molded by violence and hardened by the heat of wars. We are passing down pain to our youth with calloused hands. History has been sculpted for us, but we'll continue to have faith that our future is malleable as clay. I am ready and willing to shape a better future for tomorrow, but today we are just echoes of the past. One of the things, before you got into your poem, you said you were commissioned to write a poem. It used to be for any important event, a poet was commissioned to do verses. Yeah. I mean, Robert Foss for President Kennedy's right. inauguration. And then, you know, Bill Clinton brought it back with Maya Angelou. And I remember that moment when uh, she was sitting in front of, you know, all the throngs and did the poem, A River, A Rock, and a Tree. And I, you know, I had tears because I thought we always need the poet, you know, the, the poet to speak um, at funerals. There's usually a poet there who's going to, you know, do a elegiac poem. You know, the poet is there, you know, um, just to, to resonate from the heart. Before we round up, Larissa, does Greenville have a poet laureate? Greenville does not have a poet laureate, and it's uh, it's the next step for us, I think. Okay. Just, just tell them they're behind Charleston and Columbia. <laughs> I think it's there getting ready to happen. I think at Furman <laughs> Universities, there's some rumblings. Um, Jeff over there is thinking about um, putting together, you know, a panel together to um, elect uh, Greenville Port Laureate. I think Greenville, it's time. It is time. I am really sorry, but Alfred has given me the wind-up sign. Mm -hmm. So any last words for our listeners before we sign off? And Larissa, I'm going to start with you. I think that what poets do and artists do in our lives is transform us help us see deeper, help us see clearer. And I invite anybody uh, to come to one of our poetic conversations at the Peace Center and, and see it for yourself. And we are immensely proud of the community that we're building, and we, we invite everyone to come. All right. Marcus? Wow. Well, it's an honor to be on the show, so thank you for having us, and thank you for being part of the energy of normalizing, talking about, you know, poetry, because it's still this crazy special thing, and um, I don't want it to be special, because special means separate. It needs to be just a normal thing that we talk about a lot. All right. Glennis, I'm giving you the last word. Well, just two things. Um, 
thanks for the platform to talk about um, the program Peace Voices and our poetic conversations. We have the one coming up in April, um, Poetry's Sake, April 26th with Marcus and Cheryl Boyce-Taylor, Marcus Amaker and Cheryl Boyce-Taylor. And then in June, we have Poetry with Pride, celebrating Pride Month with Andrea Gibson and Denise Smith, and that will be June 28th at 6.30. The last thing that I would love to say is that I am so enamored that our uh, CEO, Megan Regal, has made a space at the Performing Arts Center for poetry. And that means space in our community, space at our facility, but also space in our heart for us to connect. Um, I'm a big believer in what Maya Angelou says, especially in these times that seem like we're upside down in, in ways that we are more alike, my friend, than we are unalike. Well, Glennis Redmond, Larissa Gelman, and Marcus Amaker, Thank you all for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did the individuals as guests, but also learning about Peace Voices at the Peace Center, a program that is making a difference in the Greenville community. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.